Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Giving a chat about Halloween, which is coming up in just a few days at the time of recording. It's going to be great for all the people who discover the podcast in, uh, you know, a couple of months and are listening to this episode in, like, March. How timely. Uh, But no, look, with the the spooky season in full swing, I know listeners might be curious as to what Halloween's deal is and, and why we even celebrate it in the first place. And so this week... All your questions will be answered. What is Halloween? Where did it come from? What's with the, the dressing up and the pumpkins and the casually accepted confectionery-based extortion from children? Halloween has a long and a quite, a, quite an interesting history, going all the way back to its roots as a, as a Christian festival, All Hallows' Day. Uh, and, of course, the night before All Hallows' Day is All Hallows' Eve, which eventually became Halloween. Hallows' Eve... Hallow's Evening, Halloween. Um, and it went from a celebration of Christian martyrs from you know, centuries and centuries ago, over a thousand years ago, uh, to a celebration of the dead more generally, all the way through to what it is today. And we're going to get across both how and why this happened in today's episode. From its beginnings as a Christian feast day to the influence it underwent thanks to the Gaelic and Celtic festival of Samhain, uh, Halloween has changed enormously. Over the years, we're going to talk about these changes. Some of its traditions have, of course, stayed alive and well and are with us today. Others have changed in various ways, and some have fallen by the wayside altogether, as we'll talk about. And these days, it's a, a huge part of the culture of the United States, and therefore, for us over here in Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand, it's it's tough to ignore. It uh, does seem to be catching on a little bit more every year. I'm not huge on it, personally, but look, it makes kids happy. And it's very hard to oppose something that makes kids happy too strongly. Although, I don't like getting threatened and extorted. So, hmm. Anyway, before we begin, um, a big thank you to alert listener Robbie Potts and especially alert listener Eric Whedon, who has been listening for years. Cheers, Eric. And also cheers, Robbie. Both these listeners getting in touch to suggest I, uh, I get across the history of Halloween. So, thanks very much to them. And... Thanks very much to any new listeners tuning in to Half Ass History for the first time. Welcome, by all means, welcome. Maybe you were scrolling through Spotify looking for something to listen to as you were getting ready for getting getting all dressed up for your Halloween party. Well, hopefully we'll all learn a thing or two this week and can, and can be the life of our Halloween parties. Tossing around the classic Half Ass History, well, actually, and obviously making a ton of new friends as we do. So anyway, we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the days of the early Christian church, to the 4th century CE, to talk about the Christian festival known as All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day. All Hallows Day is a Christian festival held each year, celebrating and honouring all Christian saints and martyrs. Uh, It's still celebrated, even, even today. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, they all get in on it, although usually it's called All Saints Day rather than All Hallows Day. And customs include sharing food, laying flowers and candles on graves. It's even a, um, a public holiday in, in many nations all around the world. Um, but technically, however, celebrating All Hallows Day actually begins 
the day before All Hallows' Eve and continues through to the day after All Souls' Day. And this three-day period is known to Western Christianity as All Hallowtide, and it remains a reasonably important festival on the Christian calendar. But when does it fall and why? Well, for that, we go back to the 4th century. Uh, The first instances of a Christian celebration of all the saints and martyrs, uh, these were... These celebrations are held on all sorts of different dates. The Friday after Easter, the Sunday after Pentecost, they're all over the place. However, on the 13th of May in either 609 or 610 CE, Pope Boniface IV reconsecrated the Pantheon in Rome, and this time he dedicated it to the Virgin Mary and all the martyrs. And the reason that he chose the 13th of May to do this was because of the date of the old Roman festival of Lemuria, uh, an event that saw ancient Romans purge restless spirits from their houses. So you can already see something of a link from the very, very ancient celebrations associated with Halloween all the way through to the modern era. Um, But as as they've done with a fair few dates on on their calendar, the Christians nicked uh, an existing festival, right? They they nicked this festival of Lemuria and they co-opted it instead as a Christian one. Very smart move in getting people on board with Christianity. And so from the 7th century, uh, All Hallows Day was celebrated on the 13th of May. However, this date did not last very long. In or around the 730s, Pope Gregory III dedicated a new shrine in the old St. Peter's Basilica to the holy apostles and all saints, martyrs and confessors. And he did this on the 1st of November. In the coming years, the date of All Hallows Day, the day celebrating all the saints and martyrs and, uh, I guess, confessors as well, um, it shifted from the 13th of May to the 1st of November, partly because of Pope Gregory's shrine and also partly because of some other factors, which I guess we have to talk about as as kind of murky as the water is about to get. Um, Generally speaking, the uh, this period right in the northern hemisphere heading into winter this was a traditional time to honor the dead which obviously is what all hallows day is all about honoring saints and martyrs um and in places like the british isles and northern germany there were uh, there were again existing festivals that already took place on the 1st of november so it's very possible that these were also co-opted or taken over or amalgamated or whatever whatever you want to call it with the Christian tradition of honouring dead saints and martyrs. Now, I read through a a lot, uh, just a whole heap of stuff on this, and I can save you the trouble of doing the same by uh, by saying this. No one agrees on any details whatsoever when it comes to the true origins of All Hallows Day being on the 1st of November. Some people say it was because of Gregory's new shrine. Some people say it was because of due to old Gaelic and Celtic pagan festivals being held on that date. We'll come to that. Um, Some say it was because Charlemagne or maybe his descendants decided to make the 1st of November the official date of the festival across the Frankish Empire. Uh, Some say, this one's great, uh, some say that it was because pilgrimages to Rome in the hotter month of May were just a, a, a bloody bugger of a thing. And that it would be better to move the festival to November so people aren't killing over in the heat. Uh, Sorry to be so imprecise about it. I really don't like the the weaselly phrase some people say. But honestly, there just isn't anything even close to historical consensus on this. So whatever the case, by the time we get to the second millennium CE, All Hallows Day is firmly established as taking place on the 1st of November for, for whatever reason, right? Could be any or many of the ones we've talked about. 
But by this stage, the festival has actually changed. The scope of it has broadened. All Hallows Day isn't just about honouring saints and martyrs, but the dead in general, with people celebrating the lives of, of loved ones that had, that had passed away. And by now it also involves a bunch of new customs too, ringing church bells and praying for the dead, lighting candles at grave sites, baking little cakes called soul cakes to give out to people, usually kids, uh, making little lanterns out of hollowed out turnips to ward off evil spirits, dressing up as departed saints. So you can see where this is going already. We're going to talk more about the development of these customs and, and how they've influenced modern Halloween a little bit later on in the episode. Uh, we'll talk about where they came from, how they developed. But for now, we'll stay the course in talking about the All Hallows Tide Festival. Because in the coming years, coming centuries, All Hallows Day actually didn't do very well for itself during the Protestant Reformation. And look, honestly, I don't really want to have to get into the weeds about why, because it involves a bunch of ridiculous theological disputes about saintly intercession and the Catholic purgatory versus the Calvinist predestination, arguments over what a saint was, what a spirit was, what their objectives are, and, and how they seek to complete them. So, look, yeah, look, I'll, I'll leave it to you to research and establish your own position on all of these, these hard-hitting theological issues uh, while I worry about, I don't know, more personally press, pressing issues like, did I remember to get milk from the supermarket? No, I didn't. So it looks like I'm raw-dogging dry muesli tomorrow morning for breakfast, which is not ideal. Anyway, in Protestant areas, right, uh, many of the traditional celebrations and customs of All Hallows Day, they ended. Some were abolished. Some were banned. They were seen as far too popish. They were seen as leaning on the, the, the Catholic dogma that was being overthrown by the Protestant Reformation. However... Some of these celebrations, these uh, these traditions and these customs, they slip through the cracks and they manage to survive, survive all the way through to today, the modern era, which again, we will come to. Anyway, no matter how it was celebrated, um, by this stage, All Hallowed Tide had taken on another new meaning by the back half of the, of the, of the second millennium. By now, some Christian sects believed that All Hallows Day um, is when the the spirits of the dead that have roamed the earth since they died finally properly shuffle off this mortal coil and go to, uh, look, I'm not getting into it, wherever is next, heaven, hell, purgatory. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping myself out of these theological arguments. These are arguments that have been kicking around for centuries and they are not going to get solved by a Tin Pot History podcast host who is more worried about tomorrow's breakfast, I can tell you. Anyway, with this belief, right, that the 1st of November is when all of these spirits finally depart the earth, people then considered the 31st of October to be the last chance for these spirits to get stuff done while they were still here. And this is what takes us from All Hallows Day to All Hallows Eve. All Hallows Eve, again, ultimately becoming Halloween. But if we're talking about uh, spirits here as they enjoy their last night of, uh, of roaming the earth freely, well, obviously some percentage of these roaming spirits are going to be evil. And what are these malevolent spirits going to do with their quickly disappearing remaining time on Earth? They're going to get up to no bloody good, mate. Of course, they're going to seek vengeance on their enemies and perhaps even worse, go after those about whom they feel largely ambivalent. People who followed this belief would go out of their way to bless themselves and their property on the 31st of October 
so as to avoid the wrath of evil spirits before they finally headed off on the 1st of November. Um, there are theories that people would even, in order to avoid the, uh, the, the evil spirits that were seeking them out, people would, wait for it, dress up so as to avoid being recognised by these evil spirits. Look, it, it, it makes perfect sense. If you piss someone off and then they die before they can square the ledger, they're obviously going to come hunting for you as a spirit. That makes sense. We all know that. But if you're dressed as, well, I don't know, a sexy nurse instead of just wearing your regular clothes, this may befuddle and confuse the evil spirit as they float by, completely failing to recognise you. Um... This is real history, by the way. We're sort of making light of this, but this is this actually happened. Christians legitimately started dressing up on All Hallows' Eve to avoid the vengeance of malicious spirits. Although, I will confess, there is not an abundance of evidence um, on the historical record to support the, uh, support the whole sexy nurse thing. Anyway... After being a somewhat haphazardly scheduled feast day to celebrate saints and martyrs, All Hallows Day moved, for whatever reason, to the 1st of November and then took on a new meaning as a festival of the dead. And this has stuck around to this very day. As I mentioned, Christians still celebrate All Hallows Day and All Hallow Tide more broadly all around the world. But these celebrations are usually very different from our common conception and understanding of Halloween. The, uh, the spin-off, if you like, the, the Frasier to the cheers that is All Hallows Day. Halloween has a set of customs and traditions that are linked to the religious aspects of All Hallows Day and All Hallows Eve, as we've talked about. But they've changed enormously over the years to be near unrecognisable in the modern era. So let's go back once again now and talk in more detail about these customs and traditions and figure out how we went from honouring Christian martyrs to honouring sexy nurses and full-size snickers. And to do this, we need to talk about the Gaelic and Celtic festival known as Samhain, spelt S-A-M-H-A-N, not to, be, not to be confused with Dr. Sam Haynes, the founder of the Sydney Animal Hospitals. Samhain is a festival that, uh, that celebrates the end of the harvest season and marks the beginning of winter. And it is also held on the 1st of November, although festivities begin on the 31st of October. Historically, Samhain involved uh, feasting, bonfires, fortune telling, divination, even stuff like animal sacrifice. We don't see that too much these days, but uh, Samhain also involved other traditions that may be a little more familiar, dressing up giving out food, and also being very worried about the spirits of the dead coming after you. Um, those who celebrated Samhain, and for that matter, still celebrate Samhain today, uh, believe the border between this world and the next was at its thinnest on the 31st of October. And this was the time when fairies or elves were cutting about, or just when spirits of the dead could revisit this world to, to wreak havoc. Or just like pop in and say hello. Many people would actually set an extra place at the table for a departed loved one to uh, to come back and, and, and share another meal with them in spectral form. Uh, again, it was a festival that celebrated the dead. And if this sounds similar to All Hallowtide, it's, it's not a coincidence. Sarwin definitely had a very strong influence on All Hallowtide, but All Hallowtide also had a very strong influence on Sarwin. This is known as religious syncretism, when two religions blend or incorporate their customs into one another. And this sort of thing is alive and well in many places throughout the world. 
In Peru these days, Catholic celebrations incorporate elements of Inca-originated Quechua culture. In Mongolia, the Khotan people practice a form of Islam that incorporates elements from Buddhism and Tengrism. And uh, perhaps best of all, in Nigeria, there is a religious movement known as, uh, well, it's got a got a cracker of a name, I can tell you that. It's known as Chrislam. It is a hybridization of Christianity and Islam, and it's got one of the best names you're ever going to come across when it comes to organized religion. Anyway, while it's, um, while it's certainly accurate to say that Christianity nicked elements of Samhain, the, uh, the reverse is also very much true, and the two events are still very closely linked to this day, given how one has influenced the other. Sarwin may have been behind the date change to the 1st of November and certainly was behind many of the ongoing traditions of All Hallows Day, uh, while All Hallows Day in turn added new elements to the traditional celebrations involved with Sarwin as Christianity continued to expand uh, across the rest of Europe. But then again, people disagree on all of this, the hows and the whys and everything else. So once again, I'm just going to be a huge coward and not get involved in the arguments. But what certainly is beyond contradiction, uh, however, is that Samhain played a huge role in the development of what we today call Halloween. And, and I'll tell you why. I mentioned before that um, there were these, these curious traditions that emerged throughout the first half of the second millennium in, con- in, in connection ultimately with All Hallows Day. And this is where Samhain comes in. I said earlier on in the episode, uh, I said we'd be talking about the, the celebrations, the, the customs and, and the traditions that emerge to go on to define our modern conception of Halloween. And many of these came from Samhain. There were many traditions and customs that, that, that have been passed down through the generations from this ancient festival. But there are also many that haven't. And so I want to talk about some of the ones uh, that didn't make it, right? I want, to, I want to talk about some of the traditions of Samhain that did not stand the test of time because some of them are very amusing indeed. Uh, for instance, we now no longer slaughter cattle, uh, especially on the evening of the 31st. We don't offer up animal sacrifices all that often these days. Uh, nor do we do things like pouring molten lead into water to do a bit of divination and scrying. Uh, these are just some of the many customs, traditions and, and games that didn't make it as, as part of the uh, traditional Halloween celebrations. Um, and it's a great shame because some of them are terrific, right? Never mind animal sacrifice. Check these ones out. Have you ever tried apple bobbing? It's still around today, just not hugely associated with Halloween as much uh, as, as it used to be. Um, I did it a couple of times as a kid. I remember we, we did it at school a few times. It was great fun, right? You have a great, great big tub of water, uh, which has a bunch of apples floating on the surface. And um, using only your mouth, you have to fish one of these apples out of the tub. Now, this usually leads you to soaking yourself as you dunk your head in the tub and try to grip an apple with your teeth. Um, and, and while it is fun, the the, the consequence of, of, of successfully apple bobbing is you you win an apple, which is just about the worst possible result when you're an eight-year-old craving lollies. It's not really much of a, of a, of a prize for your success. And also, now that I think about it, those tubs of water would have had so much kid spit in them, and I was full-on dunking my head in them. Oh, gross, dude. Anyway, um, this actually wasn't the only apple-related tradition lost to the history of Halloween. Um, Another one involved hanging a rod from a ceiling horizontally, right, and then skewering an apple at one end. You would then uh, gather in a circle, spin the rod around, and 
and try to grab the apple again just using your teeth so essentially just goon of fortune but uh with an apple plus you've also got the added excitement of maybe maybe getting whacked in the head by a rod if you if you mistime your bite badly enough so it sounds like great fun um, and there's another, yet another Apple-related activity, if you'll if you believe it. This one goes back to the uh, the, the divination and the fortune tell, uh, telling I mentioned. You peel an apple, right? You have to peel it very carefully. So uh, the peel comes off in one great big long strip, right? Like you have to do it in a big spiral around the apple. You then take the peel and you throw it over your shoulder. Now, apparently, the peel would then land in the shape of the first letter of your true love's name. Now, that sounds lovely and romantic, but I tell you this, it'd be a bugger of a thing if your name was Xavier, right? The peel would have to split perfectly right down the middle, right, as it was thrown, and then the two pieces would have to land across each other, right? Like that's ever happening. Maybe maybe that's why we don't see that many people these days whose names begin with X, right? That must be it. They've all died out because they never had a true love. This is the this is the only possible explanation. Um, there's more fortune telling activities. Uh, for instance, uh, you would get two hazelnuts, one for you and one representing the person that you are uh, that you <laughs> that you're crushing on super hard. And you would put these uh, these hazelnuts next to a fire to roast them. Now, if the nuts jumped away from the heat, which isn't something I realised that hazelnuts could do, I didn't realise that they sometimes had self preservation instincts. Um, if they jumped away from the heat, apparently this was a bad sign. Whereas if the hazelnuts just went along with it and and roasted, then that was good. Sure. Okay. Just like in real life, I guess, when, you know, if you can burn to a crisp with someone, then you probably really love them, I suppose. I don't know. Anyway, there are all sorts of other games and activities that involve predicting true love. Um, you, you'd, uh, you'd bake a ring into a cake and then cut it up and serve it to people. And whoever got the slice with the ring in it would be married soon. Um, you could also put a coin in there as well. And whoever got that slice would apparently soon come into wealth, which is very handy because... You'd have a huge dental bill to cover after, you know, biting a coin. Uh, there's, there's obviously heaps of other traditions and customs and games and all that sort of stuff. We don't have time to talk about them all, but I do want to tell you about one more. My personal favourite, this one. I really wish we hadn't lost this one. I really wish this was still a, a Halloween a Halloween tradition because check it out, right? What you do, you bake some scones, right? And then you cover them in, in something sticky, right? Syrup, treacle, something delicious, sugary, sticky syrup, right? You then take these scones and you hang them above your head on a string. The challenge is you then have to eat these scones, right, while they're hanging there without using your hands. So anyone trying to do this is just going to make a great big mess, end up with syrup and treacle all over all over your face, right? Sounds like terrific fun. And can you imagine doing that at a Halloween party these days? Everyone's dressed up, you know, pissed out their heads, having a great time trying to eat treacle-covered scones from the branches of a tree. I would love to see this. We, we, we really, really should bring this back. Anyway, this was all par for the course with uh, with Sarwin celebrated uh, way back when. Um, although you know these these traditions have sadly fallen by the wayside in more recent times. But there is stuff that's lasted. The stuff that went on to to influence All Hallows Tide celebrations and become part of All Hallows Eve traditions. Um, and this included things like dressing up, going from house to house, singing or reciting poetry in exchange for gifts of food. This was known as guising, and it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to Scotland and Ireland, and it was done in particular by children. These kids were generally 
threaten people with mischief if they didn't hand over food once uh, once they'd finished singing. Um, although today, when you think about it, we've actually skipped past we skipped straight past the singing and actually go directly to the threats, which which shows the efficiency with which children generally approach approach the uh, the completion of assigned tasks. You've uh, you've got to hand it to them. Um, but uh, look, more on that later. We'll talk about that uh, in, a, in a little bit. Let's talk uh, more about some of the old traditions before we talk about the modern ones. I mentioned dressing up. This was done for a range of reasons, some of which we've already covered. There are some people, as we talked about, dressing up to uh, to confuse any vengeful spirits that may be uh, maybe roving around. Um, but you uh, you could also dress up as a spirit uh, yourself if you wanted to. You dressed up as a spirit representing the the weak border between the two worlds. You could pretend to be a spirit popping back for a visit and a quick feed. And uh, and all of this this dressing up tradition, right? It, it developed. It influenced Christian celebrations. People would also dress up as the saints that were being celebrated as part of All Hallows Day. Um, and so you didn't necessarily need to dress up as something nasty or scary, but of course, a lot of kids did, and um, they also enjoyed causing mischief and mayhem if people weren't forthcoming with little treats for them as they went guising. And of course, people would also carve lanterns, usually out of turnips. Back then, light was a, a very big part of Sawan celebrations. I mentioned uh, how they'd light bonfires. People would also light torches, take them around with them to ward off the uh, the malevolent spirits that were flying around, or uh, I guess if needs be, uh, the odd malevolent child as well. But these torches were sometimes put inside lanterns that were carved, as I say, out of vegetables, which apparently was a common thing in the British Isles back in the day. Who knew? And these lanterns would then be carved with um, with scary or ugly faces again, so as to, to scare off evil spirits. So think about where this leaves us, right? We're going from house to house, asking for stuff to eat, dressing up and carving lanterns out of vegetables. This was what was done by people celebrating Sarwin years ago. It was what was done by people celebrating All Hallows' Eve. And it is today done by people celebrating modern Halloween. So why is it then that Halloween, out of all of the weird old religious festivals, why is it that Halloween has ended up being as popular as it is? Why is this the one that has made it through to the 21st century largely intact? It's changed obviously pretty significantly, but it is still very much in in touch with its, its old historical roots. Well, to answer that question, right, to uh, to explain why here in Australia on October 1st, coals and woolies are filled with black and orange decorations, flogging fun-sized Mars bars and putting out displays of pumpkins. The answer to this, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, is the cultural influence of the United States of America. The US sneezes and the world catches a cold, as the saying goes, and that is more or less the case with Halloween. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a huge number of people emigrated to the United States And a lot of them came from Ireland and Scotland. And with them, they brought their customs and their traditions, including all of the customs and traditions that came from Samhain and All Hallows' Eve. And it was these that resulted in the modern celebration of Halloween. However, very interestingly, just as it had done as All Hallows' Day and Samhain, Halloween celebrations also evolved and changed further when they were transplanted to the other side of the Atlantic. This is a uh, this is a celebration that has undergone an enormous amount of change over the centuries, and that pattern of change continued as it arrived on the shores of the United States. For instance, 
Instead of carving lanterns out of turnips, people in the US instead used the native pumpkin to make their lanterns, which is larger and much easier to carve, and of course, much more disgusting to eat. As much as I detest turnip, pumpkin is the foulest so-called food on the face of the planet, so carve away, I say. The more carved pumpkins there are, the fewer that are being served up as dinner. Uh, interestingly, however, carving pumpkins in the US actually predates Halloween-related traditions. They were uh, more generally associated with harvest season, carved pumpkins, not just Halloween specifically. So you can see how celebrating Halloween has developed depending on who is doing the celebrating and where and what their existing traditions were. Halloween has amalgamated all sorts of, of different customs from all around the world. Anyway, the other major change that took place as, uh, as Halloween began to take root in the United States was a change in... Um, hmm, how, how, I'm not sure how to put this. A change in branding, I guess? Because by now, it's not an openly religious celebration. It's neither pagan nor is it Christian. And instead, it's begun to take on a different direction. And this different direction was very heavily influenced by yet another cultural movement, right? This is where the, the, the change in branding comes in. Gothic horror. Dracula, Frankenstein, classic works like these spawned a new genre that, given the prior association with death and spirits and, and the supernatural in general, Halloween also absorbed. So this is why we have ghosts and vampires and witches and skeletons and monsters and everything else associated with Halloween. A religious festival about death and the otherworldly was very ready to pick up and run with elements of the brand new and very popular gothic horror genre. And this, of course, influences another key element of modern Halloween. I would say its principal activity now, dressing up. As gothic horror entrenched itself as part of Halloween, kids went from dressing up as evil spirits to dressing up as anything spooky or scary, the aforementioned ghosts and vampires and witches and skeletons and monsters. And then from there, this expanded to just dressing up in any costume whatsoever. It's not just horror-themed costumes that we see these days. Halloween is used as an excuse by by childless adults to essentially just get together and have a dress-up party while getting on the turps. And this, this has brought about what is perhaps Halloween's newest tradition, the tradition of seeing who can come up with the cleverest reference to something in pop culture with their costume. I imagine this year there is going to be a lot of Barbies and Oppenheimers. I can foresee a fair few DJ Crazy Times and Biliana Electronica Planet of the Base costumes. But yes, as, as time went on, we went from dressing up as something scary to just dressing up in general in the same way that singing for bits of food years ago has just gone on to become yelling trick or treat. Again, how's this for efficiency? Kids have got lots of houses to get through, mate. They've got places to be. They've got people to see. Just give me the lolly so I can get out of here, mate. Guising, as it used to be called, has more or less completely been eclipsed by trick or treat, right? And whatever your opinion on it is, I'm sure you will agree with me on, uh, on one key truth when it comes to this practice. These kids who go around from house to house shouting trick or treat, they are absolutely unprepared to be answered with trick. These kids are relying on a culture of fear after centuries of mischief, rightly assuming, right, 
that everyone will just go along with the treat so as to avoid the threat of the trick. But here's the thing. They haven't organised a trick. They haven't prepared a plan for when they're actually denied a treat. Kids these days have grown lazy and complacent. They are taking their treats for granted. They're not ready to put in the hard work and actually pull off a trick. They're resting on their laurels. They think they've got this extortion racket all figured out and they've had it too easy for too long. Back in my day, we... Well, we... I don't know, we didn't go trick-or-treating. It's not really a thing here in Australia, is it? Even today? I don't think I've... I don't think I've ever had kids knock at my door. But I tell you what, if they do, I will be answering trick in no uncertain terms. I will not be extorted out of my treats. I'm not afraid of you, you little bastards. Do your worst. Um, uh, anyway, anyway, history of history, the history of trick or treating. Yes, um, <clears throat> It, uh, it took off properly in the United States uh, in the 1930s and flourished after it was depicted in kids' magazines throughout the 1940s. By the time we get to the 1950s, it's being shown in comic strips like Peanuts. It's being shown in Disney animations. And so in the US, at least, it had become a, a heavily entrenched part of Halloween celebrations. It hasn't really caught on in other places in quite the same way, um, despite the best efforts of, of big confectionery and also the, the, the best efforts of big razor blades, if, uh, if you believe the urban legends. And look, I don't want to get needlessly cynical here, um, but if we're going to talk about the modern popularity of Halloween, we do need to address the fact that it is worth literal billions and billions of dollars to the US economy. Retailers in the United States expect to take in over 12 billion US dollars this Halloween, which is a lot of money. It is more than the GDP of Tajikistan or Kosovo. So when we look at why Halloween is as popular as it is today, there are significant commercial vested interests in this celebration being celebrated. And I think it would be naive to suggest that that doesn't play a part in one of the reasons that Halloween is the the event that it is. People complain about Valentine's Day having been invented or at least, you know, encouraged by big flowers and big greeting cards to sell more products. And look, I don't think they're completely wrong. There is a level of capitalistic opportunism there as there is with Halloween. But on the other hand, it brings a lot of joy to kids. And what greater purpose is there for money to serve, really? Maybe an automated sprinkler system for my front yard that'll soak the young punks as soon as they set foot on my property. That'll teach little racketeers to come for my lollies. Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> Broadly speaking, it's the it's the same story throughout many places across the world, particularly in Western and Western-influenced nations, right? The, the cultural hegemony of the US is very difficult to ignore. And the modern commercial incarnation of Halloween is is picking up in popularity slowly but surely in many places across the world. Here in Australia, across the ditch in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in, in parts of, Amer- of the Americas and Asia, um, and of course in traditionally Christian Europe, even in countries where the religious aspects of All Hallows Day are still felt strongly enough for it to be a public holiday – Halloween is still taking hold and activities like trick-or-treating, carving out jack-o'-lanterns, dressing up all these things, they're becoming more and more popular as Halloween moves 
into the next stage, I suppose, of, of all of the traditions and, and customs that, that have followed it around through the centuries. It's, it's disingenuous, even if you don't like Halloween, to claim that this is a festival or a holiday that has, that has lost its roots or that it has, has forgotten its, its true meaning. This is something that is more, more often sort of brought out when arguing about Christmas. But the same can be said of Halloween. You know, it is, in some respects, a mindless commercial cash-in, uh, taking advantage of, of retail spending as people decorate their homes and buy costumes and, and, and lollies to hand out. But on the other side of things, you can just look at this as the, as the next step in the life cycle of a very dynamic and constantly evolving celebration that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and has taken so many forms that it's a little presumptive to say that one is more authentic or legitimate than any other. And look, I think it's very fair to say that Halloween has significantly diverged away from the historical and religious festivals uh, from which it, from which it originated. But that's not to say that it's any less legitimate as a festival and as a celebration, um, particularly when you consider the ever-changing and dynamic nature of this celebration, which I think we have firmly established across the course of this episode. But wherever Halloween is today, whatever form it takes, whatever customs, cultures, rituals, traditions and, and celebrations it involves in the modern era, you can't deny its historical links to the celebrations that went before it. Halloween, All Hallows' Evening, it began as a Christian festival. It was strongly influenced by everything from paganism on the British Isles all the way through to candy sales at the supermarket. And the end result? is being willfully extorted by children at your doorstep. So happy Halloween, everyone. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of Halloween. And uh, even if you're not huge on Halloween, even if you're like me and don't really think much of the, uh, of the event as a whole... Hopefully you enjoyed learning something about it. It's it's an interesting story. It's particularly fascinating to, to find out where the, the, the customs and traditions and all the rest of it actually have come from. So hopefully you got something out of this. Um, and uh, once again, I, I very much appreciate listeners uh, getting in touch to suggest topics like this, timely topics. So thank you, Robbie Potts. Thank you, Eric Whedon. Uh, please do get in touch yourself if you've got another suggestion for a topic, particularly one um, that has something to do with anything that's going on in the world right now. The best place to do that, of course, is halfhourshistory.net. And while you're there, if uh, I talked last week about the fact that a half hour history book is in the works. So if you or anyone you know have any kind of literary um, connections, if you know or perhaps are a, a publisher or a literary agent or someone that can help get a book published, I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much to everyone who has already got in, got in touch. I'll be sifting through those emails and... Uh, and uh, getting a better idea of, uh, of the best place to, to, to steer this particular ship. Because uh, I'm very excited about the idea of, um, of a half-ass history book that people can get their hands on. I'm hoping to write, uh, write a fair few, actually. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's one of, again, don't want to say too much, but one of a few things that I'm cooking up for next year that uh, is going to uh, take this, this Tin Pot History podcast into the realm of, uh, well... 
perhaps a bronze pot history podcast. We'll see how we go. Anyway, it wouldn't be possible without the continued support of, uh, of listeners like you. So thank you very, very much for tuning in. A special shout out to all the Patreons who are supporting me, patreon.com slash half history. They're every week enjoying all sorts of bonus content, behind the, behind the scenes stuff, uncut episodes, show notes, early access to shows, and of course, ad free listening. Um, and in, in addition to that, I want to uh, give a special thank you to all the new listeners who have stuck around all the way to the outro. A lot of people don't, so thank you for being here. It's uh, it's great to have listeners like you who uh, who are squeezing every last uh, drop of juice out of the content orange. Hopefully, you'll, hopefully you'll stick around. Over 275 episodes for you to get across. If you have a look in the podcast description, there are some uh, some crackers to get you start with because you know the back catalogue is it's fine, but. There are some stingers in there, but there are also some good ones. So um, if you want to get across some of the uh, the, the better episodes, have a look in the, uh, in the podcast description and you'll see some good places to start. But as ever, to old and new listeners alike, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Uh, the numbers have been going crazy recently, which I am immensely appreciative of. of uh, all the new listeners who are sticking around, thank you so very much. All the old listeners who have been here through thick and thin, the half-ass history old guard, you're the very best, and I'm so fortunate and so grateful to have you along. Anyway, going to close out the show, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. We've got a, uh, a question fitting for the Halloween season here about, ooh, spooky ghosts. It comes to us from Redditor Naggers123, who asks, Why don't ghosts just fall through the floor? 